Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. John chapter 6 is definitely the most important passage for Roman Catholics when it comes to the doctrine of transubstantiation. So in in transubstantiation, when, when Catholics celebrate the Eucharist, the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, and it is really present. That, that's what's so important to them about transubstantiation, when the substance of the bread and wine is changed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ then he is more present then with them than he ever is at any other time. And so this real presence of Jesus Christ is a, a huge deal for Catholics. In the Catholic Catechism in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1374, section 1374, they're quoting the Council of Trent at first, and it says this, in the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ is truly, really, and substantially contained. And then the catechism goes on to quote Pope Paul VI, and it says, this presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude other types of presence. So yeah, I, th- I think what they're getting at there is Jesus can be spiritually present with us in other ways, okay? Um, so it's not to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense, that is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself holy and entirely present. So in the Eucharist, Jesus is really present in a in a in the fullest sense, in a more real way than at any other time because of this doctrine of transubstantiation and behind that, that the Bread and wine is the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, in John 6, the Catholic interpretation, where they're, where they're getting this idea, uh, I've listened to several debates, as I've mentioned before. Also, if you go to catholicanswers.com or catholic.com, which is the website for Catholic Answers, if you just type in the search bar, John 6, you can hear uh, a lot of different representatives from that organization answer questions like people call into a radio show. There's videos you can subscribe to get. I've watched a a five-part video series by Tim Staples on the Eucharist, and one of them is completely devoted to John chapter 6. So this is a a huge topic, and and there's lots of information out there so you can get the full uh, Catholic understanding of this, uh, of the interpretation of John chapter 6. But let me just give you the key verses again. I read them at the end of last week, but it's John 6, 52 through 58. And, and a lot of times when you're listening to the Catholic response, they just jump right in. So they jump right into the middle of a very long chapter that all contains, you know, one conversation, one thought between Jesus' followers and himself. But Catholics like to jump right in to the the part that they want you to hear. Okay, so it's John 6, 52 through 58. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my 
flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so Catholics will read that passage and they'll say, I don't know how much clearer Jesus can make it. You have to eat of his flesh and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. You have to do that. It is truly his flesh and truly his blood. And so, you know, how much clearer does the Catholic Church have to make this? In this Tim Staples video on the the Eucharist, uh, he encourages his listeners to write down these two verses. He says, John 6.41 and John 6.52. And in these two verses, he says this: these are the two main objections that listen, the, the, the listeners of Jesus, the followers of Jesus are making, the people that are grumbling about what he's saying. And he says they object to these two points. The first one is that he came, he says he came down from heaven. This is talking about Jesus' deity coming from the Father in heaven. And then the second point is in, in verse 652, it says, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Tim Staples goes on to say, he, you know, Jesus doesn't chase after them because many of his followers are going to walk away. They, they say this is, this is too hard a saying to accept. We don't believe it. And so they're going to walk away. And so Jesus, he's, Tim Staples says, Jesus doesn't chase after them. He doesn't just, you know, essentially say, guys, it's just symbolic. I'm just talking symbolic. No, he says Jesus doubles down and he holds to his statements about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And so as a result, many walk away from him. Now, my question would be, is this really what John 6 is teaching? Is this really why the the disciples walked away? And that's what we'll get into today as we walk through John 6. Now, uh, this week has probably been one of my favorite weeks in preparing a podcast episode because it is my favorite thing to do is to open a passage of the Bible and study it just with with fresh eyes and try to read through it and and understand what is God trying to teach me in this part of the Bible. So I've I've mentioned this before, but the first thing you have to do is read the passage over and over and over again. I've I've read John well actually I've read a, a lot of the surrounding chapters of John as well, and I've read the Gospel of John a bunch of times in my life. But um, you re- want to read the passage over and over and over again. I use the Bible app where I can listen to this as well. So as I'm just doing things around the house, I just listen to this passage over and over again. And you want to ask yourself first, what is the author trying to teach their original audience? John is writing this gospel with a purpose. So what is he trying to teach? What is John trying to convey? And and of course, John is led by the Holy Spirit as he's writing this. And so that's what you have to try to figure out first. What is the author trying to teach their original audience? And then only after that, then you can make applications to your own life. Now, the Roman Catholic Church cannot do this. If you if you are a faithful Roman Catholic and you intend to continue that way, you cannot do this. I want you to understand that. You cannot open the Bible and say, okay, God, teach me what your word is, is trying to say. You cannot do that. 
You're not allowed to open God's word and ask that question. You can't simply study the word of God and learn from the Holy Spirit because you have to interpret it given the the Roman Catholic interpretation of that passage if if the church has defined it that way. And so you you have to be in agreement with the Roman Catholic Church. You you have to look through your Roman Catholic goggles at the Bible. Now, Hear me out on this. I am not saying that there's no value in a community of believers um, sort of confessing that the Bible teaches certain truths. So I'm not saying that we don't need any kind of church organization at all. We don't, you know, nobody needs to be part of a church. Just get your Bible and walk out in the middle of a field and just, you know, interpret it what, however you want to. No, there's there's a lot of benefit in being involved in a local church. I think it's biblical. If you're not involved in a local church, you're not being obedient to God's word. But you need to be involved in a local church. There are commentaries. There are pastors you can talk to. You can have friends get together. And so when you come to the Bible, you can you can all study the Bible. And here's the beautiful thing. When you study the Bible and you start out with just you and scripture but then you tell you know other people who are studying or maybe you read a commentary from a guy who studied the same passage hundreds of years ago and you arrive at the exact same interpretation the same conclusions that they did and your only source was going to the bible that is a, a beautiful thing, and it's encouraging, and, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit works in that and, in, and encourages you as you continue to learn more and more from the Bible. So being a part of a local church, looking at what other people have, uh, have interpreted, you know, how other people have interpreted Scripture is a great thing to do, but it must always go back to Scripture. Scripture is the the sole authority that all commentaries, all you know, people in church history, everybody has to be compared to Scripture. And so, if you see a clear, um, a, a clear disagreement in their interpretation and what Scripture says, then you can stick with Scripture. So that's the difference there. The Roman, you know, if we talk about the difference between. Roman Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants, and of course I'm a Protestant, the Roman Catholic Church looks at the Bible and they have to interpret it through church tradition and what the church has always taught. They, it, it can't change ever. Now, Protestants come to the Bible with the Bible being the sole authority. Sola Scriptura. The Bible is what is is the ultimate factor in determining truth. So if there's some traditions that have developed over time in the church and we go back to God's word and, and figure out, man, we have we have just slowly departed from the word of God, then we need to reform. And so the Protestants are always reforming. We are always going back to the Bible to make sure that what we're doing today is consistent with what the Bible teaches. And because we are sinful, you know, fallible creatures, we are are prone to fall into certain traps. And so that's the importance of having the Bible so you can go back and and study and 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 stay in line with what the Bible teaches. So I would say that would be a, a huge difference between Protestants and Catholics. So today is John 6 teaching what Catholics say it teaches. Now, if you have any questions, you can always connect with me. 
bearchristianity at gmail.com or message me on Instagram at therealbearmartin. And today, instead of a sponsor and instead of a bear in the woods, I have a special news update. This is a, a serious message here, a serious news update. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, she has always, you know, she's claimed to be Roman Catholic for years, yet, especially now with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, she is in open support of abortion. Now, the Roman Catholic Church historically has been pro-life. Um, and in fact, a lot of devout Catholics don't even use any form of birth control, that sort of thing. So v- very much on the pro-life side of the abortion debate. Now, Nancy Pelosi's archbishop in San Francisco uh, denied her having the Eucharist, said, you know, don't come to Mass. You will not be allowed to participate in communion with the Roman Catholic Church because of your open support of abortion. So this is a big deal. It was, you know, all over the news and stuff like that. And, and the reason it's a big deal on a on a spiritual level is because she is denied the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, in the Catholic system, going to Mass and partaking of the Eucharist is the best way to get more grace. And, and you got to get grace as a commodity, a commodity. You have to keep getting this grace. And so she was denied by her archbishop the presence of Jesus Christ, his body and blood. She could not partake of that. Now, recently, Nancy Pelosi took a trip to the Vatican. She met the Pope. She and the Pope exchanged gifts, and then she was given communion at a papal mass. So this is a major, major problem because if the archbishop denies the communion, and then you travel to the Vatican, have a a nice warm greeting with the Pope, exchange gifts, and then sit in an honorary position at this mass and, and receive communion, then we've got a major dispute among the Pope and one of his archbishops. So this is a major problem. Who is wrong? The archbishop? Now, if if the archbishop is wrong, then you would expect that there's some sort of formal discipline from the pope, um, maybe even removal from the, the office as archbishop, because here's what he has done. He has denied a believer in the Roman Catholic Church. He has denied a faithful member of the Roman Catholic Church the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which is, to them, of extreme importance. It is the source and summit of the Christian life. So if the archbishop is wrong, then something has to be done about him and his leadership. He he must be disciplined in some way. He has committed a massive error against Nancy Pelosi. Now, if the archbishop is right, then the pope is wrong. And so, well, here we here we go with papal infallibility. Now, the pope can do whatever he wants as long as he doesn't speak ex cathedra and he doesn't say some the special words so that he's speaking infallibly. He can commit all kinds of errors. And so some people can say, well, the pope, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't exercising his infallible authority, so he could be wrong in in giving Pelosi the the communion. This just doesn't follow. It just doesn't make any sense that this man can just do whatever he wants, and just because he doesn't say special words, he, it doesn't matter. No, it should matter what the Pope does, and the Pope has, has gone in direct contradiction, and it's not like he doesn't know about it. He's in directly contradicting an archbishop. So if Catholics truly believe that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, then they should demand clarification from the Pope on this matter. If the Pope should discipline the Archbishop, um, or I guess the Pope would have to admit that he was wrong in giving Pelosi the, the Eucharist, but both can't just continue to hold together. 
the, what, think about the purpose of the Roman Catholic Church. What the Roman Catholic Church says they offer to someone looking to follow Christ. They say, well, you know, we have unity. Look at all those Protestant denominations. There are the thousands and thousands of Protestant denominations out there. But the Roman Catholic Church, we are unified. We have, you know, Peter and the successors of Peter in the Pope. And, but here we have extreme disunity, you know, extreme separation from the Pope and one of the archbishops supposedly under him. So in the Roman Catholic Church now, you can be denied the body and blood of Jesus Christ in your hometown, but you can take a plane ride to the Vatican and there you can get the Eucharist. It, that Again, it just doesn't follow. So think about it, Catholics. This is your church. This is the church you, you believe in. This Pope and those in leadership under him stand between you and God. And again, as a reminder, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, so remember when I said a long time ago that I was going to start doing shorter episodes? Um, that is just completely blown out of the water. I, I think I need to say from now on, I'm going to do really long episodes and maybe that will help me shorten them. So I'm going to go ahead and call it. I don't know exactly how long this episode is going to be, but this is probably going to be my longest one ever. So uh, thanks for for listening, and you know you can break this up into parts. But the reason this is a long episode is because we're walking through John chapter six, and it's the longest chapter in John, and it's also one continuous thought, and that's the the purpose. That's kind of my complaint in the way that Catholics interpret this. They kind of jump into the phrase that they want to use, eat the flesh, drink the blood. And there's a there's a whole um, consistent teaching that Jesus is sort of leading them through, and it all matters. And so that's what we're going to do today is kind of uh, walk through that passage. So before we get into John 6 specifically, let me just remind you of the gospel of John's purpose. It's so that you may believe and have eternal life. Now, believe, that word is from the Greek word pistuo, and it's used over 90 times in the gospel of John. And I'm not talking about just Anytime that the word believe is used, I'm talking about it's used over 90 times in specific reference to believing in Jesus. And so th this is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. When Jesus's side is pierced, after he's on the cross, they, they pierce his side with a spear and the, the blood and water flow out. John 19.35, it says, and, and John is, is talking about this to himself, and he's sort of stepping outside of the narrative of the story, and he's talking to his readers. And he says this, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe, okay? And then at John uh, 20, verses 30 and 31, this is towards the end of the gospel, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, one thing that's going to be important it says that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah. And so Jews are going to have a problem with Jesus as the Messiah because he's going to die on the cross. And, and the Jews are thinking the Messiah is going to come and set up this, this kingdom uh, like the, the kingdom that David and Solomon ruled over. And so they think he's going to set up a political kingdom. And that's one of the big problems. That's why the Jews sort of turn on Jesus once he's 
taken in by the Romans and he's going to be crucified, they're like, okay, this guy can't be the Messiah. Uh, A week earlier, they welcome him in saying, Hosanna, they lay the palm branches down because they think he is this political ruler that's going to now uh, establish the, the old kingdom of Israel. So John is writing this so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, another thing Jesus claims about himself, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything that John writes in this gospel, he said, I've left a bunch of stuff out, but everything that John writes is so that you may believe. That is his purpose. Now, John uses several symbols in in his gospel, and these are just random order, just as I was thinking of them. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. He's called the Lamb of God. Jesus says you must be born again. He says the Spirit is like the wind. Jesus gives living water. Jesus says, I am the vine. He's the door, the gate, the, the good shepherd, the bread of life. So there's all these symbols throughout the gospel of John And, you know, I would interpret them all as having a symbolic meaning. John is using these symbols to teach us something with the general concept of so that you may believe. He's teaching about belief in Jesus for eternal life. Now, Catholics will say, yes, all of those are symbols except the bread one. When, you know, the bread of life and eating the flesh and drinking the blood— Everything else is a symbol, but that one we've got to take absolutely, literally, as as in the most basic way you can possibly think about it. That's how we have to interpret that passage, and so I, you know, obviously I believe that's a problem. So hopefully I'll be able to explain that as we go along here. So now when we go into specifically John chapter six, let me give you a little bit of context that'll be important that I'll be referring back to some. So uh, in John chapter three, Nicodemus, who is a big time ruler amongst the the Jews, as far as a religious leader, he's a a Pharisee. He's a great teacher in Israel. Um, Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? His, His focus is on physically being born again, Uh, And then throughout the conversation, we realize that Jesus is speaking of spiritually being born again. In John chapter 4, the next chapter, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and he says, I will give you living water, which will well up inside of you, leading to eternal life. And so she says, well, give me this water so that I don't have to come back to this well. Again, her focus is physically on the living, on water, that some kind of special water that Jesus can give her. And then as you keep reading, you realize Jesus is talking about a spiritual eternal life, a spiritual water that wells up to eternal life. So as we get into John chapter 6, I'm not going to walk through the entire chapter because at the beginning you have the feeding of the 5,000. Most people are familiar with this story. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, the the crowd wants to make Jesus a political ruler. They want to make him king. And so he sort of sneaks away and, and separates himself from them so that this can't happen. The disciples go to cross the Sea of Galilee. A storm arises. Jesus walks on the water, gets in the boat, and then the way the Bible reads, it's almost as as if miraculously the boat is like immediately onto shore where they where they want to go. So they cross the Sea of Galilee and so they're in the region of Capernaum and the people who Jesus fed the day before are looking for Jesus and they they find him. So they are seeking Jesus, but they are seeking him as we're going to find out in the first few verses that they are seeking him because they want more food. I mean it's it's free food. And so they are they want to see miracles. They they like the benefits that being around Jesus provides, but they're not truly 
uh, his followers, as we're going to find out. Now, as a little side note, today I am using, as I'm walking through and reading uh, all these Bible verses, I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible Translation. So usually I use the ESV, English Standard Version. Today, this is a, a very new translation. One of my buddies bought this Bible for me, and I really like it. I, I may do a future episode, like when I'm on vacation or something, just like a, a, a brief episode. Yeah, yeah, right, right. But um, a brief episode on just what I like about this translation, that sort of thing. So that's what I'm using if you're trying to follow along specifically. Because uh, some of the words that I emphasize may not be in your translation. All right. Now, uh, let's get into it. So I'm going to start at John chapter 6, verse 26. And I'm just going to read and make comments along the way. And we're going to go through the entire rest of the chapter. So a lot of verses today. John 6, 26. Jesus answered them and said... That, now, this is right after the crowd is that he, he fed the 5,000 and they found Jesus... And so they essentially, they want more food. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And this was the common problem throughout Jesus' ministry. The crowds wanted a show. They wanted to see the miracles. And in this case, they wanted the free food. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what should we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So again, John's purpose in writing everything is so that people would believe. So a few things I want to point out here. Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life. So now we got to find out, okay, what work do we have to do to get this food that gives us eternal life? And, and so they ask him that, you know, what work should we do? And to be working the works of God. Jesus says this is the work of God. That's singular. There is a single work of God. There is one work that you must do in order to have this food that gives you eternal life. And what is that work? It is that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus, in verse 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so that's how you that's how you get this eternal life food. And so again, we this this whole teaching of Jesus is going to build. So you have to keep in mind what he talks about at the beginning and once we get towards the end. You can't just jump to the end and and draw conclusions based on that. It's it's one continuous teaching. Now, Jesus has already mentioned work and food earlier in John's gospel. John reports this when he talks about the Samaritan woman at the well. And so right after Jesus talks with her, she goes back into town to tell others about Jesus and the disciples come up. So the disciples were not there for Jesus and the, the woman's conversation. And so she leaves and the disciples sort of come in towards the end and, and, they're, and, and it picks up in John 4 verses 31 through 34. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And again, again, this is a common thing. Jesus is speaking spiritually, and the people around him are, are take it 
literally, like like physically at first. And then as you follow the conversation, you realize it's it's a spiritual meaning that Jesus is, is talking about. Very common throughout the whole Gospel of John. So he's, Jesus says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Again, their focus is, is physically. And then Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So again, for Jesus, his food is to do the will of the Father. And what is the work of the Father for him? It is to save us. And so Jesus in doing his work is eating spiritual food. He you know, he's he's nourished spiritually. And so Jesus food is to do God's work. Likewise, we will have food that gives us eternal life if we do the work that God calls us to do. And what is that work? According to Jesus in John chapter 6, it is to believe in Jesus Christ. And so so our belief is the work of God that gives us eternal life. Keep that in mind as as we're reading. So John 6, 30. So they said to him, what then, again, this is the crowd talking to Jesus, because I know I'm I'm, uh, bouncing back and forth between John 6 and John 4 right now. So back in John 6, the crowd is talking to Jesus. They say, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here's what they're, they're talking about Moses and the manna that was provided in the wilderness for the, the 40 years that, the, that Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So they're saying, as Jews, they're saying, okay, we follow Moses and, and the teachings Moses gave us. He was a great prophet. And he, in in one of the ways he was proven to be a great prophet is because manna was provided in the wilderness for those forty years. So they're they're kind of saying, you know, what what else you got for us, Jesus? Because yeah, you fed us one time, the feeding of the five thousand. But Moses, you know, a great prophet, fed us for forty years with the manna that God provided. And so, you know, what else you got for us? Verse thirty two. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Moses has not given you the bread from heaven. And, and, and that's a correction there for the people. They, you know, they said Moses gave us this bread. It, the bread was from God. But he says this, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven for the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so then they said, verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven "I am" statements um, for about different things, and so he he says, "I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine." And so here is the first one in verse thirty-five. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life." He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And so at first, in this conversation, Jesus spoke of this bread of God, which comes down from heaven and gives eternal life. And Jesus said, the way that you get that bread is to believe in me, believe in the one that God has sent. Now, the crowd is expecting Jesus to then perform a miracle similar to the manna, which they claim Moses provided in the wilderness. So this, they're, they're, they're still thinking that the bread is something else. And then Jesus says, no, 
I am the bread of life, me, that I am this bread which has come down from heaven. So this is the first of many shocking statements by Jesus throughout this passage. He says, I am the bread of life. That's that's going to cause some problems. Jesus is claiming here not just to be another prophet like Moses, but he's claiming that he came down from heaven. This is a claim to Jesus' deity. And the next phrase is extremely important. Here we have Jesus you know, setting out the categories which apply to the rest of our discussion. This Again, this is all the same conversation in John chapter 6. So later, when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, these same concepts still apply. And so he says here in, in verse 35, he says, He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So he who comes will not hunger, he who believes will not thirst. And basically, this is just a a, um, a way of saying that this coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus are the same thing. They when you come to Jesus or you believe in Jesus, it's this it's he's it's different ways of saying the exact same thing. And remember, the emphasis of the Gospel of John is so that its readers may believe. That is the focus of all these conversations in, in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is referring to a spiritual hunger and thirst. The way we know this is because there are plenty of people who have come to Jesus and believed in Jesus over the course of church history that have died physically hungry and thirsty in dungeons. So so Jesus is not talking about, if you believe in me, you'll never be physically hungry anymore. You'll never be physically thirsty. No, of course not. This is a spiritual hunger and thirst. And so coming to Jesus equals believing in Jesus, and these will lead to eternal life. Believing in Jesus leads to eternal life. This is this concept is all over the place throughout the Gospel of John. John 3, 14 through 16, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man may be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5, 38 through 40, And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. Jesus is talking to the, the, the Jews here. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that bear witness about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So again, we have, you know, you don't you don't have life because you don't believe, and you don't have life because you don't come to me. Believing and coming to Jesus are the same thing. So that's something else to keep in mind as we as we move along here. Now, verse uh, John 6, 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, the the people that believe, they have eternal life, and Jesus will raise them up on the last day. Remember, Remember all of those phrases. Now, let's go back to verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. 
So very clearly here, there is a group of people that are given to Jesus by God the Father, and all of them, every single one of them, will come to Jesus. They will believe in Jesus. And all those who come or all those who believe, Jesus will never cast out. So Jesus' mission is to do his Father's will. Let me read verses 39 and 40. Now, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And and then again in verse 40, everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, there's this specific group that is given to Jesus by the Father. And if you're in that group, you will believe in Jesus. Now, how do you know that you're a part of this group that's given to Jesus by the Father? Well, verse 40 tells us everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. So if you're worried in some way that you're not part of this group, then believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. We we have both here the the God's sovereignty in salvation and also human responsibility. So you may not understand every philosophical argument for what is being taught here in these verses, but your responsibility is to believe. However, if you believe in Jesus, do not reckon that belief is is your own superiority in some way. Um, You're not wiser. You're not better in any way. The only reason you believe and come to Jesus is, is because you were given to Jesus by the Father. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, meaning the grace and the faith, is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not of works, so that no one may boast. No one can say, well, the reason I'm saved is because I was smart enough to have faith in Jesus Christ. No, that even that faith is a gift of God. So this it, this should humble us and recognize that it is, it is by God's grace alone that we are saved. Now, this, this teaching of Jesus, that those who come to Jesus are given to Jesus by the Father— it should be an encouragement to the believer. If you are truly given to Jesus by the Father, then Jesus will will give you eternal life. You will not be lost. Jesus says, I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. So that is an encouragement that if you come to Jesus in belief, Jesus is a perfect Savior. So this is an encouragement to the believer, but never an excuse for the unbeliever. You will be judged for your unbelief. And this is not my opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. So again, we have God's sovereignty right alongside of human responsibility. Jesus tells here that no one can come to me unless the Father gives them to me, unless the Father draws them. So that's God's sovereignty part of it. But then he also says, everyone who believes in the Son will be saved, will have eternal life. And so we've got both of those right side by side. Now, this very thing was part of the grumbling that we're going to read about in the crowd that was that was listening to Jesus teach here in John 6. They had a problem with this. They had a problem with with Jesus saying that you can't believe in me unless you are given to unless you were given to me by the Father. And be, so be careful that you don't grumble and and sort of buck up at this in your own heart because it can open the door to unbelief. 
you, what we need to do is rest in the fact that we are saved by God's grace alone. Now, does that mean that we just you know do whatever the heck we want to do? No, there there is a mission. There is a a um, people that that are truly saved that truly believe they will have the fruit of the spirit. They will they will produce good works. But it is not the works that save him save them. It is. It, well, I guess you could say it this way. It is the work, which I talked about earlier. What is the work of God in order to get this bread that gives eternal life? It is to believe. That is what you must do. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And so this is this is one of their main complaints about what Jesus is teaching here. They're saying that we know this guy, we know this Jesus guy, and he's claiming not to be like us, but rather he's saying he is from God, the, the his Father in heaven. And so this is a, a major problem because Jesus is is claiming deity here. In the the previous chapter, John five eighteen, John tells us this: For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And in a few verses down, John five twenty three, Jesus is saying, "So that all will honor the Son." even as they honor the Father. That is massive. That is a massive uh, statement there, that, that people should honor the Son in the same way as just as much, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so there are, there are plenty of different religious groups that do not believe Jesus was truly God come in the flesh. And so they, they honor him as a great teacher, a great prophet, uh, you know, whatever, but they, they put God the Father on a, on a separate, a, a more superior pedestal. And, and Jesus says, no, you must honor the Son even as you honor the Father. And so a little bit of a, of a glimpse into the Trinity there. So Jesus was making extremely bold claims about himself, and this was difficult for the crowd around him to believe because they grew up with him. They knew Joseph and Mary, and so they're saying, you know, how can this guy say he's he's come down out of heaven? Now, uh, Jesus is going to answer them, and he says, stop grumbling among yourselves. That's in verse 43. And so in my translation, the word grumbling is used to describe the crowd. They're, they're sort of muttering, and they're debating and arguing amongst themselves about what Jesus is saying. And so now Jesus is going to address this grumbling. So they're, they're grumbling about all the stuff that, that Jesus is saying, and he says in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, there's that phrase, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And so Jesus is repeating this same concept that we just discussed earlier in verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This word draw is something that God is doing in this context. The same word is used to describe fishermen that are hauling or dragging in a net full of fish. That's used in John 21, 6. And it's also used when Paul and Silas are dragged into the marketplace to stand judgment before the rulers in Philippi. And so this is not like 
me trying to persuade my dog to come to me because he's, you know, he's got his toy rope and I'm trying to play fetch with him. And so I'm like, come here, boy, come on, come on, you, you know, come here. It, it's not that. It is me going to my dog and grabbing him by his collar and drawing and dragging him to where I want him to be. So again, Jesus is, is teaching he is sent from heaven. The Father has given specific people to Jesus. And because they are given, they are drawn by the Father. As a result of that, they will come. They will believe in Jesus. Because of this, Jesus will raise them up on the last day, and they will have eternal life. So it's a very consistent thing that Jesus is, is teaching here. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. That's Jesus talking about himself. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. This is such an important verse here. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. That's John 6, 47. It's as simple as that. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He who believes has eternal life. Now, notice how Jesus connects believing with the symbol of bread. So that, that's what he's going to do now. He truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, okay? And then in the very next verse, verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So, so you need this supernatural nourishment. You are supernaturally hungry and thirsty, and you need supernatural spiritual nourishment. And Jesus says, you find that in me. I am, I am the bread of life. Your, verse 49, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. That, that was physical bread that was provided by God, the manna. But Jesus says, in contrast here, verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, Jesus is, is, is turning the page a little bit here in the conversation. So he says, you know, this, you have to believe in me for eternal life. I am the bread of life. Quit working for bread that, that perishes. Work for the bread that gives eternal life. How do you get that bread? You believe. And then Jesus says, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Again, it's, it's a very consistent teaching by Jesus. So in verse 51, to say it again, he says, and also the bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus, again, he's, he's sort of shifting a little bit, and now he talks about giving his life. He's going he's gonna to give his life, and, and the life he gives for the world is his flesh. This is a reference to Jesus dying. And so in verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus has introduced something new here. He's already claimed a lot about himself, um, that he's not like them. He's from heaven. He's sent from God the Father, and he gives eternal life. And so the crowd already, when he, when he feeds the 5,000, they try to make him king. They already think that he is the promised Messiah. They, they're already thinking this about Jesus. But now Jesus says he will give his life and they must eat his flesh. So this is a reference to eating the flesh of a sacrifice. Jesus is going to die. And the Messiah, the, so, so think about as a Jew, the Messiah dying, even to this day, it is a stumbling block for the Jews. That Many Jews do not believe that Jesus is the true Messiah because he died. That That is a, a massive stumbling block for the, Drew, for the Jews. And so 
Jesus, in verse 53, he, he emphasizes his statement here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So Jesus, in saying this, he's clearly telling them that he will die now because when to a Jewish mind, when you eat the flesh and drink the blood, and, and it says you have no life in yourselves, in order to have life, you must eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, that, that, is, uh, that is sacrificial language. And so again, in Catholicism, when they come to these passages, there are certain points that they will make. But again, I, I think it's, it's not consistent. It breaks down in some areas, which I'm going to get to in a second. But this, I, I do believe that Jesus is using sacrificial language here because when he starts talking about drinking the blood, eating, eating the flesh and drinking his blood, that you, you can only do that if someone or an animal dies. And so in Leviticus 17.11, there's there's laws laid out for the nation of Israel about not drinking blood, and it says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So when when Jesus, this is the first time Jesus says, you know, he said, you know, you must eat my flesh. I'm the bread of life. Jesus is talking about that. But now he throws in the blood factor. And so he says, I'm going to give my life and you must drink my blood. Now Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And he's using a, die as in a sacrifice. And so I think this is a, a reference here to his blood atonement that he's going to make. So verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, where have we heard this before? Where have we heard that before? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has... Uh, so that part's new, but... When they do that, they have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, previously, what what filled in that gap there? He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Well, if we look earlier, it's he who believes has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So keep that in mind. We cannot forget everything else that has been previously said. We've got to put this whole conversation together. So in verse 54, there are three possible interpretations of of what gives eternal life. So if we're just reading verse 54, it would be, oh, okay, well, in order to have eternal life, you have to eat flesh, you have to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. That, you know, if we just go, if we just jump right in to that verse alone, if you just flipped open your Bible and read that verse and you'd never read anything else in the Bible, you would think, wow, okay, well, that's kind of strange. But we can't do that. We we have to read it in context. And so there's three possible interpretations. One is that simply eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking his blood gives us eternal life. Well, that one can easily be kicked out because of what had been stated earlier. It believing gives eternal life, and Jesus raised up those who believe. He will raise them up on the last day. And so there now we have two things. So it can't just be eating the flesh and drinking the blood. So we can kick out that interpretation. The second one would be, okay, well, now Jesus has taught that there's two different things that give eternal life and that he will raise up on the last day. So maybe we have to believe and we have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. And so if this is the case, and, and I think this is very close to the Catholic interpretation here, I mean, obviously, you, you they would say you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, but they also say that you have to literally eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, and that's what happens in at Mass at, at, with transubstantiation. 
Now, if this is the case, if this is what Jesus is teaching here, is that in order to have eternal life, you have to believe and also uh, eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus, then why isn't this emphasized throughout the rest of John's gospel? This is, you know, if we we have all these different scenarios where Jesus is talking to people about eternal life, and he says, you know, to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. To the woman at the well, he says, you need living water. To the people here, he says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You need the bread of life. So Jesus is using different things to to teach about eternal life, but these are, you know, so do we also... Are all the other things required? Do we have to have this live? We have to drink of the living water, but we also have to eat the flesh, and we also have to drink the blood of Jesus. I mean, it, it it's not Jesus is not piling on different requirements for eternal life, and we got to do all of these. No, rather he this is all related to belief. So if if we take the Catholic view on this. John makes zero connections for us. If Jesus was referring to eating and drinking his transubstantiated flesh and blood, well, nobody in John 6, the crowd here would not have had a clue what Jesus is talking about. And as far as transubstantiation goes, it would be over a thousand years before anybody had this concept in mind when they when they come to the flesh and, and blood of Jesus. So in the Catholic interpretation, if Jesus is talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, the problem is that this story happens you know, roughly a year before Jesus institutes the Last Supper with his disciples. So nobody there would have any sort of knowledge about what Jesus is talking about. Also, if Jesus is truly teaching his disciples about the Eucharist here, that that and, and this is one of the key teachings for the church in all the scripture, remember, in Catholicism, the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. And so why doesn't the gospel according to John mention this more? If you remember from last week, the Last Supper accounts of Jesus having the Passover meal with his disciples, all the verses where Jesus gives thanks, that's where we get Eucharist from, where he breaks the bread and he says, take, eat, this is my body, and drink, this is my blood of the covenant poured out for you. The gospel of John does not include these passages in the gospel account. So you're telling me that the source and summit of the Christian life is is not that John doesn't make that connection for us that I, you know when Jesus is sitting down at the last supper he doesn't say hey remember back when I was talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood you know this this is what I was talking about I mean in John 6 there's just no context for the people to understand this at all if what Jesus means is to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood Now, another problem with the Catholic interpretation is that it forces this text to mean that simply partaking of the transubstantiated bread and wine will give us eternal life. Again, Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so if we are to interpret this the way Catholics want to, in the most basic way, then physically partaking of the transubstantiated flesh and blood of Christ should give eternal life, right? But for Catholics, when you partake of Mass, that doesn't give you eternal life. You can lose it. You have to keep coming back. Now, think about this, and you, you, after I say this, you may have to pause the, the, uh, the podcast here, but if you have eternal life, if you have it right now, then if you lose it, if you can lose it, then it wasn't ever eternal in the first place. 
Okay, think about that. It, it, Jesus says that if you believe you have eternal life, you have it right now, this very instant. And so if you can lose it, it was never eternal in the first place. And so the mass does not give you eternal life. And so by eating the flesh and drinking the blood, Jesus says, you if, if you do it the way that Jesus is talking about in John 6, it gives you eternal life and Jesus will raise you up on the last day. But in Catholic mass, that is not the case. If You can eat the, the flesh and drink the blood, but you can lose it. You can go to hell. And so you don't actually have eternal life. Also, think about this. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, Judas Iscariot is clearly present when Jesus broke the bread and passed the cup. That means Judas participated in this the, eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. So if we're going to take verse 54 as literal as possible, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. By everything that I can read about Judas in the Bible, it, it doesn't seem like he's in heaven. It doesn't seem like he has eternal life and Jesus is, is raising him up on the last day. And so, but, G, but Judas partook of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, if the, the Last Supper is what Catholics say it is. And so again, I find all of this inconsistent with the Catholic interpretation of these passages. If the if mass if if literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is associated with eternal life, if it is the source and summit of the Christian life, then why don't we find this really mentioned a whole lot in the rest of the New Testament? Think about the the different passages where where people say, you know, what must I do to be saved? At Pentecost. Uh, in Acts 2, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the Philippian jailer says, You know, what must I do to be saved? He asked Paul and Silas, and they say, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Romans 10 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians 1 21, for since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You know, just to go further, I mean, think about John 3:16. It is believing that gives eternal life. There's so many times where believing gives eternal life in the Bible and and the the this idea of eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is not found anywhere in that context. So if it was so important that you had to do it for eternal life, then why don't we see that in the rest of the New Testament? Rather, I believe that Jesus is using the symbol of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as a way of describing belief. And this is very consistent with the Gospel of John up to this point. Again, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus was not thinking on a spiritual level at first, but but that's what Jesus was referring to. The Samaritan woman, you need living water. She was not thinking on a spiritual level at first. And, and Jesus clarifies what he means by eating the flesh and drinking the blood in verse 54, because he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For the crowd there, he's already said, if you believe you have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is clarifying for us that eating the flesh and drinking the blood equals belief. They equal each other. It, it is not in addition to. There, he's not piling on all these requirements for eternal life. He is using a symbol to describe belief. Each of these illustrations with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, they, they teach us 
an aspect about belief. When you eat and drink, nobody can do that for you. It is personal. Also, you don't eat something that you don't believe has value. Now, we may eat a donut knowing that it's not very nutritious, but its value is that it's delicious. We don't just eat anything or or drink anything. We don't just eat dirt, you know. I mean, you know, maybe sometimes kids do because they don't know what they're doing, but um eating and drinking has a purpose. We don't put things in our body that that we know don't have any value at all. So eating and drinking is intimate. To eat and drink of Jesus is to believe in a way that is personal and that it it will affect you. It affects your life. And so this is what I believe the proper interpretation of this passage is. Believing equals eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And, And I believe the context shows us this very clear. So it is symbolic. In fact, you could go through this passage, and every time you see eating the flesh and drinking the blood, if you just replace that with believe, the passage will still make perfect sense. Now, verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. It is it is true in, in the sense that it, it gives eternal life. It is better than all other food and drink, which perishes. It, his food, this, this food that he gives, gives us eternal life. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. In verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, now this is not specifically talking about the 12 disciples. This is the crowd. This, these are followers of Jesus. This is a crowd of people that have been following him around, learning from him. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, when they say this is a difficult statement, it, it doesn't mean that it's it's extremely hard to understand, like, like a kindergartner trying to read a, a you know, college philosophy book. It doesn't mean that. It, it's, it's, they know what Jesus is saying. They're just saying it's hard to accept. It's hard to accept. And there are many things in the Bible that are hard to accept. It's not that the Bible is not clear about it. It's just that to our minds, it may seem, uh, or, or it is, hard to accept. We've talked about one of those today already in that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And and this this idea that that God has given a a group of people to the Son, and so that that concept can be difficult for us to understand. And so his disciples say, "This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it?" Now, what's really important here is to think about: okay, what are they talking about? What is difficult? And so, so how can we know? We just keep reading. We see how Jesus answers questions, and that gives us the answer to what they're struggling with. Jesus is not, he's not like dodging their questions by talking about something that, that, that they, they're not really struggling with. Jesus addresses the points that they are, they are having problems with. Now, he may not give them an answer they like, but Jesus is not shying away from what he is teaching. So let's see how Jesus answers these questions. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? 
Now, that word stumble is from the, the Greek word skandalizo, and I may be pronouncing that, that wrong, but it's uh, where we get the word scandalized. Um, and so the, so I've already said that the, the death of the Messiah is a big problem. The Jews did not believe that the Messiah would die. And so earlier when Jesus said, I will die, I will give my life, and then you must, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood, he, he's going he's gonna to give his life, he's going to die. That, that's tough for them to accept because they, they don't believe the Messiah will die. So Jesus says, does this cause you to stumble? Now, that same word for stumble, the same root of that word is used in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, foolishness. Now, just as a bonus, just to show that the message of the Bible is consistent, listen to what the very next verse says by Paul, 1 Corinthians 1, 24. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So basically saying to, to those that are called, those that are given by the Father to the Son, they will believe. And it is the power of Christ. It is the wisdom of God. That is why they believe. So it sounds like Paul is teaching the same thing that Jesus is teaching in in John 6. Now, Jesus is going to answer their question. He says, does this cause you to stumble? At verse 62, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So they what they're struggling with when they say this is, is difficult to accept, it is the entire conversation. Catholics will want you to think that when they say this is difficult to accept, that they're only talking about this eating flesh, drinking blood, cannibalism concept. No, they they are having problems with the whole conversation because Jesus' answer tells us that. He says, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Remember, one of the first things that Jesus told them is that he was the bread that came down or descended out of heaven. Now he says, what are you going to do when you see the Son of Man going right back to where he was before? Another thing they struggle with is the idea that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And so Jesus, in verse 63, he, he addresses this. He says, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It is not about the works you do or the laws you keep, which the, the Jews were you know, so concerned with. Eternal life is a work of the Spirit. It is a gift of God. And, and Jesus says the same thing to Nicodemus in, in John 3, 5 through 10. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who has been born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? So here's here's what we got here. Jesus is saying, just like you cannot see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind, you cannot see the Spirit, but we see the effect of the Spirit. When the Spirit works in your heart, you come to Jesus. You believe in Jesus. And, and so Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he says, this is how you must be born again. The Spirit has to work in you. And, and, and if the Spirit works in you, you will see that effect. And Nicodemus, is, who is a Pharisee, a keeper of the law, trusting in his own good works and obedience to the laws, 
for salvation says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, he says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? The, the idea that it is the, the grace of God, the work of the Spirit in the life of an individual that leads to salvation is not a new thing. It is taught all throughout the Old Testament as well. That's what Jesus is, is getting at there. In verse uh, John 6, 64, but there are some of you, so Jesus is talking to the disciples who were grumbling about these things. He says, but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. This is three separate times, three different groups where Jesus says this, uh, essentially he's teaching this phrase that you cannot believe, you cannot come to me unless it's been granted to you by the Father. And so I think this is a, when we're reading this passage, this is a, Jesus keeps emphasizing this. And so I think the reason he's emphasizing this is because this is one of the things that the people were really struggling with. This is what they were grumbling about. Not necessarily eating the bread and drinking the blood and, and, you know, and, and cannibalism and all that stuff. I think that Jesus cleared that up when he made the comparison. He says, he who believes has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. And then, he's, and then they, they say, how can we eat his flesh? And then later down, Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus clarifies there, I'm, I'm speaking about belief. I'm speaking on a spiritual level. Um, but what they're what they're still grumbling about is that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father, and and so again that's that's what Jesus says. And then the very next verse, verse sixty six says, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So, sometimes here, Peter's question is the best one to ask ourselves, Lord, to whom shall we go? Um, if you are not a believer or you have a problem with various things in the Bible, would you look to Jesus? You know, who else can you go to? Who else will love you the way Jesus loves? Who else has has come and lived the life that Jesus lived? No one else does that for you. In Jesus, that is where eternal life is found. And so uh, Peter's response is, is excellent here. And then and Jesus answers them, in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And that's the end of John chapter 6. Now just a few concluding thoughts. And I've, I've, I've already kind of gotten at these a little bit previously, but if John 6 truly teaches transubstantiation and that, that eating, literally eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is a requirement for eternal life, why doesn't John make this connection a lot more clear? Um, because when we look at the, the whole context of the gospel of John, it is all about believing for eternal life. It is so that the readers may believe in Jesus as the Christ, and that by believing in him, they will have eternal life. Again, John skips over the institution of the Lord's Supper, and it's not like, you know, it's not like he 
had to cut something out. Like he was running out of scroll and he's like, well, you know, I'll just cut out that paragraph about the Lord's Supper. No, if if this was such an important teaching, if it was the source and summit of the Christian life, don't you think we would, we would hear more about it as far as in reference to necessary for eternal life? We don't see that in the Gospel of John and we don't see that through the rest of the New Testament. Now, yes, participating in the Lord's Supper is mentioned, and and we know that the Christian community was doing that, but it is not ever... taught as you if you don't do that you're not even you don't even have eternal life no that it's far from that it is belief taught over and over and over again as the the way to eternal life belief and faith the same word in the greek and so again why doesn't john make this connection for us that's a big point in why i believe that my interpretation and the the general protestant interpretation is correct Our closing verse is one of the most important in the passage we just discussed, John 6, 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. 